Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about how left-digit bias affects everyday decisions with help from the host of the Freakonomics MD podcast, Dr. Bapu Jenna. You'll also learn why researchers studied Neanderthals by catching thousands of birds with their bare hands. Let's satisfy some curiosity. We've talked a lot on this show about cognitive biases that affect our decision-making. Well, it turns out that your doctor is not immune to those biases. And our guest today is going to tell you about one interesting example. Dr. Bapu Jenna is a professor at Harvard Medical School, a physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, and a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, with both an MD and a PhD in economics. He's also the host of the new podcast, Freakonomics MD, which explores fascinating ideas at the intersection of medicine, behavioral science, and economics. Cody asked him a question that's actually the title of a recent episode. What do grocery store prices and heart surgery have in common? When you go to the grocery store and you see an item that's $4.99, there's a reason it's $4.99. And the reason why is because the grocer uh, knows that you are more likely to buy that item than if it were $5. And it's not because it's just a penny cheaper. Most people aren't so sensitive to just penny differences in prices. The reason why is because the mind looks at that product that's $4.99 and they see a four at the start of it. And four is less than five. So that item feels like it's a lot cheaper than it really is, and you're more likely to then buy it. And that's why we see all sorts of products and ending in 99 at the end for that, for that reason. And it's this idea of left-digit bias, that the, the mind has this hardwired bias to focus on the leftmost digit in any set of numbers. Now, does that actually happen in the hospital? Do doctors make decisions in a way that is affected by left-digit bias? We find that they do. So if you look at patients who have a heart attack, they go to the hospital. If you take a group of patients who are 79 years old and, let's say, 51 weeks, they're literally about to turn 80. Those patients are about 20% more likely to get a cardiac bypass surgery for their heart attack than a group of patients who came in with a heart attack when they're 80 years old and one week. So these two groups are basically identical. They're separated by only a couple of weeks. One group comes in when they're, quote-unquote, 79, and one group comes in when they're quote-unquote 80. And the older patients are, the less likely doctors are to want to do aggressive things like surgery. So when the doctor sees the person who just turned 80, they think to themselves, oh, this is a person in their 80s. When they see someone who comes in who's 79 years old in 50 weeks, the mind thinks this is a person in their 70s. The person in their 70s is very different than someone in their 80s. And the risks associated with surgery would be different. Even though these two groups of people are basically only separated in age by a couple of weeks. And what we find is that if you look at these two groups of patients, the people who are just above their 80th birthday when they get hospitalized with a heart attack, they're 20% less likely to get a cardiac bypass surgery because the doctors think they might be too old for it. But if you follow them out one year later, they have the same mortality rate as the people who are 79 years old and 51 weeks. In other words, we had these patients who were 20% less likely to receive a surgery, but still didn't face any mortality penalty. They're equally likely to be alive at a year. And so this is a nice intersection between behavioral economics and a very clinical question, which is the behavioral economics of it is there's this phenomenon called left-digit bias. We see that it happens in, in the doctor's decisions that doctors make. That's interesting. The next step is, 
Can you use that to tell you something about whether a treatment works or doesn't work, or is it appropriate or not appropriate in a group of patients? And here, because by chance patients are exposed to higher or lower rates of cardiac bypass surgery based solely on when they happen to have a heart attack relative to their 80th birthday, we basically have this natural experiment, randomized experiment that happens in the real world. We got a group of patients who are 20% more likely to get a surgery. These are the 79.9-year-olds, if you will but they don't do any better in terms of mortality. So that tells you that we're doing at least 20% too many cardiac bypass surgeries in that population. And that's a question that I think that's of clinical interest because it tells you that if you had to reduce cardiac bypass surgeries, could you do so safely? And the answer might be yes. Wow. What a twist. I totally thought, like, oh, those poor 80-year-olds. Yeah, exactly. It's like a (laughs) medical twist. (laughs) That's really interesting. Is there any way that people generally can be aware of that bias to help make, like, purchasing decisions or is it because like everything is priced something 99 these days right yeah i mean the, the the way i would say like the application of that study to people who are going to the hospital is like you know, i think that you know it's it's informative so if you're 79 years old or let's say let's say you're 80 years old and a doctor is not offering you um, a procedure it's worth kind of pushing on that a little bit in this particular case with the cardiac bypass surgery you you wouldn't want to push on it because it turns out that surgery wasn't going to help you but in other cases, let's say it could be a cancer medicine. It might be helpful for somebody, but a doctor might be reluctant to try it on you because you're, you know, perceived to be old. And and you know, obviously, 80-year-olds are incredibly diverse. There's some who are marathon runners, and there's some who are not. And if you're a marathon runner who's 80 years old, you're probably going to do better from a surgery or medical treatment than someone who is not. And you wouldn't want to be penalized for that just because you're 80. So I think from a patient perspective, it's important just to know that this bias exists so that when you talk to your doctor, you can understand, like, why is he or she recommending what they are recommending? Does this also apply to, like, measurements from lab tests and things like that? You know, there are always cutoffs there. Yeah, good good question. It does. So if you, let's say that there's like a lab test, which is a, a kidney measurement, 1.9 and, and 2.0 would both be considered high. But if it's 2.0, a doctor might look at that and say, oh, this is two or two-ish. If it's 1.9, they might read that and say it's one-ish. And if they're more likely then to act on that 2.0 kidney measurement by, for example, um, you know, offering a certain medicine, asking a nephrology or kidney doctor to see the patient, getting additional imaging, all those things are extra healthcare resources and costs that may or may not be beneficial. But you could use that laboratory-based behavioral discontinuity to actually understand if those things are better or not. So if having a creatinine or kidney measurement of 2.0 leads a patient to undergo some advanced forms of care and the patients do better, that's good evidence that that care is actually useful. If they do worse, that's good evidence that that care is actually not useful. So if you're on the border between two numbers, whether that's your age, your lab results, or something else, make extra sure that you're getting the kind of care you actually need. Again, that was Dr. Bapu Jenna, host of the new podcast, Freakonomics MD. He'll be back tomorrow to talk about what birthdays have to do with COVID-19. Scientists don't just sit around in lab coats playing with glass beakers all day. If you are a longtime Curiosity Daily listener, then I hope we've gotten that point across to you by now. Still, when you imagine what scientists actually do all day, 
You probably don't imagine someone hiding in a cave under the cover of night, catching birds with their bare hands. And yet, that's exactly what a team of Spanish scientists did to prove that Neanderthals used technology when they hunted together. For years, scientists have found fossils of crow-like birds called chos in Neanderthal caves. That suggested that these early hominids might have been hunting the birds. But birds, you know, fly. They're not easy to catch, which makes you wonder how the Neanderthals did it. Well, recently discovered evidence that Neanderthals used and created fire gave scientists a new idea. Could they have used fire in some way to help them catch the birds? Well, to find out, you'd have to try it yourself. And that is exactly what the Spanish research team did. The team waited until sundown to sneak up on the birds in their roosts. Then they shined a flashlight on them to dazzle them. After they were dazzled, it was easy for the scientists to capture them in a net. Occasionally, the team even caught the dazed birds mid-flight with their bare hands. Once the birds were caught, they stayed completely motionless and didn't try to attack their captors. So the scientists figured it was very plausible that Neanderthals could have used a similar method to catch the birds. Not only that, but Neanderthals would have had an even bigger advantage than humans in capturing birds at night. For one thing, fire comes with smoke, so dazzling the birds with fire might have been even more effective. And for another thing, compared to humans, Neanderthals could see much better in the dark. The team estimated that about two or three chos would have been enough to be a full meal for a Neanderthal, and a skilled hunting team could catch 40 to 60 per night, which is enough to feed three individuals for a week. And this wouldn't exactly be roughing it. It would be a 40,000-year-old gourmet meal, since even today the red-billed cho is a delicacy in some places. First, they're very nutritious— they contain a lot of carotenoids, like those in, well, carrots. But they're also incredibly tasty. Carotenoids are also a big part of what gives lobster and shrimp and salmon their unique flavor and their red color. Scientists are still piecing together the day-to-day -day life of Neanderthals from caves and fossils, and this adventure sheds a new light on the dazzling adventures of our hominid cousins. All right, well, let's do a quick recap of what we learned today, starting with the fact that left-digit bias is your tendency to focus on the first digit in a number and ignore the rest. It's why a retailer would list a price as $4.99 instead of $5. And according to research, this bias even affects the way that doctors make decisions. A study looked at the likelihood of patients having a cardiac bypass surgery after having a heart attack. And it found that patients were about 20% more likely to get the surgery if they were 79 years and 51 weeks old than they would be if they were 80 years old and one week, even though they were only a couple of weeks apart in age. That's a 20% difference in the chance of getting surgery, even though a year later, both groups were just as likely to stay alive. And now that you know about this bias, you can become a better advocate for yourself if you're a patient. If you just passed a decade birthday milestone, like if you just turned 30 or 50 or 70, then ask your doctor if you'd be getting a different medical recommendation if you were a year or two younger. And when you see test results with an 8 or 9 at the end, ask your doctor how they would react if it was just a couple points higher. 
maybe they'll change the recommendation. And this kind of works with dates too. Somebody one time was asking me for recommendations on when to launch their podcast and it was near December. And they're like, oh, should I wait till January? And I was like, well, if you launch in December, I think this was 2019, then you can tell people, oh yeah, I launched in 2019. And it makes your podcast feel a lot older than if you had just launched at the start of the year. Book authors, especially in the nonfiction realm, may also want to consider, you know, if your book's going to come out in November or December, maybe wait till January. Because then other researchers, scholars, academics, they may say like, oh, well, that book was written in 2021. Now it's 2022. That's old news, right? Weird stuff. Yeah, makes sense. And we also learned that scientists established evidence that Neanderthals probably used technology to hunt birds for food by using Neanderthal technology to hunt birds for food. Specifically, they shined a light on birds in their roost to dazzle them, then easily caught them with a net or with their bare hands. They figured that Neanderthals would have an even easier time doing this, since using fire comes with the extra distraction of smoke, and Neanderthals could also see in the dark better than humans can. I like that the researchers did this themselves. They didn't like contract out, I don't know, people who might be predisposed to have the skills required to catch birds with their bare hands, like athletes, you know, or I don't know, hunters. Yeah. A cool little behind the scenes thing about this is that the scientist who had this idea was an ornithologist. He was talking to people who studied Neanderthals and they were like, yeah, Neanderthals really liked eating chose. And he's like, Chows are super easy to catch with your bare hands. And so they're like, oh, maybe they caught them with their bare hands. And that's how this all got started. (laughs) Apparently, chows are just, you know, like shooting fish in a barrel, as they say. Wow. Still, the chows never chose to be caught. Mm -hmm. They just are born that way. (laughs) That was stupid. The writer for today's bird-catching story was Brianna Brownell. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Catch us again tomorrow with your bare ears to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. 